Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. In honor of Veterans Day, we're talking to two people who served in the United States military who are transgender, like Army National Guard vet Jacob Eliezer. What was it like finding out that just one year after being told that he could serve openly, President Trump announced by tweet that he'd be rolling that back? It was pretty jarring. At first, I thought, oh, this is like a hoax. Like, it came out of nowhere. We kind of had the rug pulled out from under us. Then hear stories of love, loss, lawsuits, and smashing world records from 99-year-old World War II veteran Robina Asti, who died in March. I'm a woman. There's no way could I be accepted as a man. I was officially granted recognition. Me, not you, me. (laughs) I'm Kyone Wolf. That's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Veterans Day was November 11th. Unlike Memorial Day, when we remember those who've died while serving in the military, unlike Armed Services Day, when we honor those who are currently serving, Veterans Day recognizes all people, living and dead, who've served in the military. Here are some numbers. According to the U.S. Census, there are about 18 million veterans in our country, or about 7% of the adult population. The median age is 65, and women make up about 9% of the veteran population. The historical statistics for vets who are transgender or gender nonconforming are harder to come by. The VA estimates that 134,000 U.S. veterans are transgender, and over 15,000 trans people are currently serving in the U.S. military. It wasn't until 2016 that the Obama administration announced that trans people were allowed to serve openly. Almost exactly one year later, President Trump announced by tweet that he was going to reverse that policy. That whiplash of exclusion, inclusion, and exclusion again has had real consequences for trans service members and their families. I'm on the LGBTQIA plus spectrum, and even I needed to get a better grip on exactly what happened in the last couple of years and how this has felt for trans people serving in the military. And a note, the term trans includes non-binary and gender non-conforming people. Organizations like SPARTA have been advocating for those service members and educating people like me. SPARTA stands for Service Members, Partners, and Allies for Respect and Tolerance for All. I spoke with their director of advocacy, Jacob Eliezer. He's a New Haven resident, a psychologist, and he's a veteran of the Army National Guard who is trans. And just real quick, a disclaimer. So I'll just start off by saying that I am on my lunch break. I am not on VA equipment. I am not speaking in my official capacity as a VA employee, nor do I represent the position of the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, I am speaking as a private citizen and as a representative of uh, SPARTA which is a nonprofit organization for actively serving transgender military personnel. Um, I'm on the board of directors as our director of advocacy. You joined the Army National Guard in 2006, and then you began your transition as a transgender man in 2010. How did that go? 
Well, I think the the first piece was kind of accepting that identity myself. I grew up in rural Kentucky. My dad was a priest. And so it took me a long time to come to terms with that. Even after coming out as a lesbian, I, I had a lot of uncertainty about, okay, well, am I just like butch? And is it about my sexual attraction to women? Or is there something else going on here? And I, I think it took me a while to kind of suss through that and then also sort of work through my own internalized shame about that. So in 2010 was was really when I made the decision, okay, like this is what it is. It's not going away. Now I have to decide, well, what am I going to do about that? Um, which is, I think, a harder question to answer because I knew that it would have been the end of my military career. You know, I had been involved at that point uh, with, with organizations that were working to uh, repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Because that was like the looming threat for you. That was what was on your mind as you're thinking, I have this that I know I need to work with and fulfill. But at the same time, if I do that, I'm out. Yeah. And I mean, it's not like I was fooling anybody, right? Like <laughs> I was a pretty butch looking person. So I don't think if like you asked the people I worked with, like, is Captain Eliezer gay? Like, they would have been like, yes. <laughs> I mean, but we did we did talk about that. Um, so I think like, for me, I think in my own naivete at that point, had this thought that like, I got this, like, I understand what what it's like to sort of live in the closet. And so I thought, okay, well, transition isn't going to be that much different. I, I don't know if I was just like deluding myself or whatever. But uh, as it turns out, um, when you start a medical transition process, again, that's not something that all trans folks do, but uh, was part of the plan for me. Things change. Uh, you know, I started growing hair in funny places and my voice dropped. And there's only so many times you can show up to drill and say you have a cold before people start to be like, oh, what's going on here? So I think Part of it was um, learning as I was going how those how that experience was going to be different. So not not just sort of learning that or kind of having confronting those situations where wait this like being trans is different than what it was like to be a lesbian in the service and having to hide that. Um, and then this other component of wrestling with my identity as a soldier, which is a really important part of. Uh, who I was, you know, I spent 12 years in. That's a long, it's a long time. You know, it's just a lot to wrestle with. In 2014, you came out to your commander. How'd that go? When I first came out to my commander, uh, bless her heart, she, I don't think she understood that gender identity was different from sexual orientation. Um, like a lot of folks, um, she was very supportive. You know, I had a good relationship with her and she was like, you know what, you know, you're up for promotion. We're going to promote you. We're going to keep you in. Don't worry about it. And then, you know, I got pushed up the chain of command, and then I ended up getting pulled out of, of training in the middle of a training exercise, told to go home, pack your <laughs> you're done. There were several things that came up legally within that process. You know, initially, you know, I had a resignation that was submitted on my behalf. And when I asked if I said, um, you know, I didn't resign, and they're like, this is what's going to be the outcome anyway, it's going to be better for you to just accept this. Now, at this point, what's the state of Don't Ask, Don't Tell? Uh, don't ask, don't tell had been repealed. So it was repealed in the end of 2010, and the policy change was actually implemented in 2011. But that didn't protect you. It did not cover trans people. It was specific to sexual orientation. It was enacted by Congress. Policies banning transgender military service were not. They were embedded in military medical regulations, right? So you can pull up the regulations, and it actually outlines that transgender uh, folks are prohibited from serving, from enlisting, from joining the military, or from being retained in the military if there's any sort of defects of the genitalia, uh, which could include sex change surgery, or any sort of me mental health diagnosis. Um, and they were still using 
uh, the diagnosis language that was in the DSM-3, right, which was published back, back in like 1980. Something with a transvesticism, right? Tra- tra- uh, transsexualism, transvesticism uh, were, were uh, some of the words that are printed in that regulation, right, up until the policy was changed in 2015. So it was pretty outdated. So I, I was very lucky in the fact that I was in a very privileged position. One, because I'm highly educated, familiar with the mental health profession. I was a part-time soldier. So while I did have some income and that was you know, important for me as a, as a grad student, I, I was going to be able to survive uh, without that income. Um, I didn't have a family who was depending upon me having health insurance. Being a white guy in the Kentucky National Guard probably didn't hurt anything. Um, being transmasculine, having a binary identity. I think all of these different things really put me in a position where I could push back on this in a way that many of my fellow service members um, were not in a position to do so. How did it resolve? Eventually, I did get a letter in March of 2015. And that day, I was studying for comprehensive exams. Uh, I got a certified letter. The letter, I'm trying to remind, remember the le- actual language of the letter, but it was like, you remember in like grade school where you like give the, you like send those notes that are like check yes or no kind of notes? Do you like me? <laughs> yeah. It's like, this was like check yes or yes, or <laughs> you're going to get discharged. Um, would you like to get discharged or would you like to go to a hearing and get discharged? It was kind of like the the options that it gave me. And then Three hours later, uh, an Alarac was published, which is an army uh, army memorandum, like army policy that suspended all discharges for transgender people, like same day. And then later on that summer, Secretary of Defense Ashton Carter announced that he was going to establish a working group to study uh, with the intent to change the policy to allow trans folks to continue to serve which was done by the RAND Corporation. They developed a new policy. And then in the summer of 2016, the new open service policy was published. Um, So I got to stay in by the skin of my teeth. One year after Obama said that transgender troops are allowed to serve openly, on July 26, 2017, President Trump tweeted, after consultation with my generals and military experts, Please be advised that the United States government will not accept or allow transgender individuals to serve in any capacity in the U.S. military. Our military must be focused on decisive and overwhelming victory and cannot be burdened with the tremendous medical costs and disruption that transgender in the military would entail. Thank you. How did it feel reading that? Um, it was it was pretty jarring. I, to be honest, like that morning I woke up to get ready for work and the and you know, I woke up and I had like a whole slew of like text messages. And uh, at first, I thought, oh, this is like a hoax. like this like it came out of nowhere. And, and so then it took a little bit of a while a while to process, but it was pretty jarring. We kind of had the rug pulled out from under us. I think we there was this understanding that there might be some pushback with the election uh, and the administration change. but you know, historically, when policy moves forward, especially in the DOD, that is moving in, in the direction of inclusivity, it's very hard to undo. And so I think there was maybe this sense among the community members, among the advocacy community, that because we were able to get this done before there was an administration change, that at least we would be able to hold ground. So the folks who were already in were able to continue serving as of, you know, 2016, but in 2017, we were supposed to start seeing enlistments for, for new people uh, who, were, who were trans. And so we saw that policy get kicked down the road, and we were like, okay, maybe there's something going on here. And then, and then those tweets came out. So 
you know, I, I think there was a hope there that we were at least going to be able to retain the service members that we've already invested millions of dollars uh, to train and, and and the thought that maybe we might lose new enlistments or new inductions, but uh, that we would at least be able to kind of allow people who are still in the service to come out and access care. So how, how do things stand now? Did Did anything change? Where are we? Yeah, so there were some there were some legal challenges to the policy. Uh, basically, the way that the policy is written now is we have folks who are exempt uh, from the policy and folks who are not exempt. Exempt persons had to have a diagnosis of gender dysphoria confirmed in their military record medical record no later than April twelfth of twenty nineteen. So the policy change uh, DTM nineteen zero zero four was published on March the 12th. So those people had 30 days uh, to get a diagnosis in their chart if they wanted to be able to transition. Anybody who got that was able to access medical care, to be out, to get their gender marker changed and their military records, all of that stuff. If it was even an hour, minute after that deadline, no. The way that the administration is threading the needle on this is they're saying that Transgender people are still allowed to serve. They just have to serve in their gender assigned at birth. Um, And we're not going to acknowledge their gender identity. So kind of back to where you were before. Yeah. So you can be trans. You just can't be trans. Even folks who were exempt from the policy, who were already serving, have had to face some pretty tremendous barriers in getting access to the care that they should be entitled to anyway. Um, by policy. So it's basically a situation where anybody trying to seek access to care is looking at a bit of a fight. What would you say to somebody who says, you know, your sexual orientation, your gender expression, your religion, you all wear the same uniform, shouldn't matter. Do your job as a soldier. What's this got to do with anything? I would say absolutely. When you decide to join the military, you know, and I think if you ask just about any service member, they'll say the same, like, I'm a soldier first. I am a service member first. That doesn't mean that we don't treat people like people. Like, that's kind of a fundamental core component of mission readiness, of unit cohesion, is that the, the thing that the military likes to say is we are the world's largest meritocracy, right? And it should be about your performance and your ability to do your duty and, and accomplish the mission, right? And I think a lot of times, you know, as with many issues when it comes to gender identity is that we get hyper-focused on the medicalization of the transition process, the pathologization of transgender identity, and people want to hyper-focus in on that. And while those are important, you know, access to care is important, it's critical, at the end of the day, you know, trans people are people. And so I think a lot of times folks get kind of stuck on that is like this idea that trans people are somehow asking for something special when really we're just asking for the same things that everybody else gets, like which is your basic medically necessary care. You're a psychologist, and there's a lot of psychologists in the military. How would you say they're doing well overall in terms of serving, uh, especially trans service members? And in what ways can military psychologists be doing better? Yeah, so I don't, um, you know, I'm not a military psychologist. I But what I can say is that I would not want to be um, on this issue uh, because psychologists have to follow or, you know, should be following the APA ethical guidelines that they have to be maintaining their licensure, which most states require you to, to be following the ethical code. And 
that code does uh, say that we don't discriminate against people. But because of the way that the military policies are written, how that gender dysphoria diagnosis is the linchpin of that discriminatory policy, it really places military medical and mental health providers in the position of enacting those discriminatory policies. It's not a, not a position I envy. The thing that kind of hurts me is, is seeing how these policies have really forced my colleagues uh, in the profession into a position where they have to choose between their own careers and doing the right thing. I also fear what that means for mental health providers who are going to be seeing uh, transgender service members after they leave the military service, right? Uh, because now not only are we having a population that sort of experienced just systemic discrimination in healthcare in general, but a specific population who now has the sort of direct discriminatory act that's been enacted by medical and mental health professionals. So for me, if I have, I have somebody coming to, to see me that has been through the situation, I'm not only having to work on what already might be a difficult process of building a trusting relationship with this person, but I'm already kind of starting out five steps behind because of these past experiences. Um, so I think it's harmful to the profession as a whole. It's harmful to our reputation, and it's directly harmful to these folks who are having to live through this experience. You and I are talking on the day after Election Day, and we still don't know who will be the president of the United States. I wonder what you would like to see. Yeah, so I think the uh, the given is that day one, we at, at least revert back to the 2016 policy. It's something that can be done uh, via executive action immediately. It's also something that has been historically well supported among the Joint Chiefs of Staff um, and leadership at the highest level in the Pentagon, right? So it's not like, um, I think that historically when it comes to LGBT rights in the military, there's been a lot of tension between what orders come down from the executive and what folks who are actually running the DOD um, are aligned on. But one of the things that was really important about the initial policy change is that the Pentagon really was who was leading the charge. Uh, so yes, the Obama administration was involved in that and certainly provided a vision for that, but it was actually leadership within DOD itself that was really holding the reins on that policy change. And so I think it's not unreasonable to expect to be able to at least sort of shift us back to that policy change pretty early on um, in an administration that would be supportive of open service. I think that the things that were left undone um, is going to be the harder, the trickier issue, right? Like uh, making sure that we're getting enlistments and inductions in place, uh, making sure that we're making space for folks uh, with non-binary identities. Those folks were got really left behind in that initial policy change, right? So, uh, you know, even in the in the most affirming and accepting policy that we've had, um, you have to check a box, and there really isn't a lot of space for folks uh, uh, in between. You know, we still have some work left to be done and making sure that folks have access to uh, surgical procedures uh, that they need. Um, you know, right now, the way that active duty folks are able to access those procedures is through an additional fund, so it's not part of the routine coverage. It's something that's additional funds for surgical procedures that require a special exemption. I think when we're thinking about the VA right now, we have a federal policy that prohibits uh, the provision of gender-affirming surgical care for veterans, right? So even though we are able to provide basically everything else at the VA, 
the uh, we still are unable to provide those surgeries, which is a huge gap in care for our veterans who have access to VA care, but may not necessarily be eligible for Medicare, Medicaid, or have an income where they're able to get private insurance. So there's a pretty huge gap in care there for those folks. So those would be the things that I'd like to see um, as an initial as an initial step is sort of filling in some of those gaps. It's a weird time to ask this question, but are you hopeful? I try to be as optimistic as possible. And and genuinely I am. You know, I don't think anybody raises their right hand and decides to serve in the military if they don't genuinely believe in our democracy, in our country. And I think for a lot of trans folks who are serving, that's very true. They really uh, have a firm belief in the American people and in our nation. I'm hopeful. That was Jacob Eliezer, veteran and director of advocacy for SPARTA, which stands for Service Members, Partners, and Allies for Respect and Tolerance for All. When we get back... I have a metal picture of an airplane taking off, and I see the two wheels separating from the ground and I'm thinking that airplane is flying and that's what piloting is. Stories about flying, love, loss and policy changes from a 99-year-old Navy vet who took on the Social Security Administration's denial of survivor benefits for trans spouses and won. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Veterans Day was November 11th, so this hour, we're spending time getting to know vets who are transgender. There are fewer than half a million World War II veterans alive today, and when this was recorded back in October of 2020, one of them was Robina Fedora Asti. She was a Navy pilot, and as of last summer, still trained people to fly where she lived in California. I first heard her voice on NPR's Morning Edition last summer when they were covering her attempt to become the world's oldest flight instructor. Every time I take off, I'm listening to that engine because it's whispering to me sweet little lullabies. Okay, we'll get to that record-breaking attempt and how she changed physical exam rules for pilots and how she completely changed the Social Security Administration's spousal benefits for transgender widows and widowers. This is a conversation we had in October of 2020. She died the following March. I asked her about the first time she ever flew an airplane. It was down in a New York City airport in a military airplane, a biplane, two wings, a tall, gentle man standing miles over me is adjusting my parachute. We get me into the airplane and I'm going down the runway. And it's right by the water. That's the Atlantic Ocean on the right and the United States on the left. And I'm thinking, and I'm holding on. And I'm thinking, I look over. That's 3,000 miles away back to land. 
the biggest three thousand miles back to water. What a delight! What a feeling to be right on the edge of six thousand mile marker. That was my first flight. Whenever I'm on an airplane, my favorite part is liftoff. Tell me what liftoff feels like for you. Let me give you an example of a liftoff from a place that nobody could be, and that is underneath the airplane. The airplane is taking off. You notice the tail, the nose wheel comes up first. And you, you hear noises and you know, this is apprehensive kind of thing. It's all mushy and gushy. All of a sudden, the right wheel comes above the ground a quarter of an inch. And you're watching it coming up. Then you, your focus is to the other wheel, which is still fat. It's on the ground. It's still going around. Suddenly, it stops and comes up. And there it is. You're airborne. You're totally divorced from the earth. Isn't it a wonderful feeling? Looking at you now, I can't say to you, I'm a pilot. You are not. And I feel terrible that you are not a pilot because you would make a very nice-looking pilot. <laughs> Thank you, Robina. May I ask why you decided to join the Navy in the first place? Ah, when I was 10, I became an amateur radio operator. I was fascinated with things electronic. And it was because of that fact that I became interested in the Navy. The Navy was a big advocate of radio communications. They were doing a lot of things wrong as far as I was concerned. So you could fix it. And I can fix it, indeed. How long were you in the Navy? From 17 to the end of the war, that would be nine years, I guess. And what made you decide to leave? By then, I wanted to do other great things, like television. To see your picture. Because maybe beyond that, I might be able to smell you touch you. These are the things that make me continue to live today. I want to live to see you in hand and I can shake your hand and feel it in my hand. That's why I am healthy, unworthy, unwise, but happy to live and know that we're getting there. 
after you left the Navy, you kept flying, right? You you were a, not only a commercial pilot, but a, a flight instructor? I got all of the licenses. So you couldn't quit flying? <laughs> oh, no, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> what is it about flying that makes it so addictive for you? You in the airplane alone. You are flying in the air like a bird has just whizzed by. I love it. I can feel the air on the wings. Uh, I can feel the, the wings shaking. That means it's very close to not being able to finish its job. You finished with the Navy, you kept flying, you got married, you'd had two children. You had said in interviews that up until a certain point in your life, you didn't question identifying as a man. It just, it wasn't something on your mind. So what changed? I couldn't do enough as a man to keep me wanting to stay as a man. And I could see where women are gloriously way behind. And we need to make women queens. Queens for all of you. I've been a man for 50 years. I've been a woman for 50 years. I love being a woman. I do. Uh, I almost wish the world could be nothing but women in it. <laughs> I simply love living. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't care. All I know is that I'm helping the world grow. So... I'd read about a policy that you had a part in changing. It was how pilots get their mandatory physical exams. Now, at this point in your life, you're living as a woman, and you go in for your first medical exam since living as a woman. Tell me what happened next. I am seeing a doctor, the same doctor, for years. He knows me. I walk into his office and... I'm now taking an examination as a woman. We had such a laugh. He puts me on the table, has me spread my legs, and is going to look internally because it's a requirement that all women be looked at internally. I said, why? He looks at me and he says, you're right. This is wrong. And so it was 12 months and that rule was taken off the, the flight examination. Tell me about when you met your future husband, the artist, Norwood Samuel Patton. Will you tell me what it was like when you first laid eyes on him in that bar in 1980? All of a sudden, this man comes in and he starts talking. He's an artist. 
And he has his studio right down the corner, 65th Street and Lexington Avenue. So he invites me to go to his studio. I didn't go. But then we make a date to meet again. And we do. And he and I gradually got to better. And then I had to tell him. And I thought, this is the end. You had to tell him that you were born a man. Yeah. No man can think of going to bed with a, someone of the same sex. It doesn't fit well with him. And I figured that was it. So I tell him. He's crying. I'm crying. And I say goodbye. And we say goodbye. I'm miserable. I knew he was pretty upset about it. And I thought maybe he'd get very mad. But he didn't get mad. He got gentle. Then about 10 days, maybe less, he calls me up. And he said, I don't care. I love you. I think of you. I want to spend the rest of my life. And so that's how we accepted each other. I understand that Norwood asked you to marry him on a monthly basis. Oh, yes. Not on a monthly basis. Every weekend, <laughs> he would say, we should get married. And we got to get married. And I would agree, but we never did. And finally, we had a wedding. And so you get married in 2004 in an airplane hangar in Orange County, New York. You live a total of 32 years with Norwood, and he died at 97 years old. Is it okay to talk about that? He has such a merriment about him that his death wasn't as sad as you might think. Well, let me preface. I come home, and there's Norwood lying on the floor, and he's laying still. I had just bought some food. I dropped it, got down on my hands and knees, and looked at his face, and he gives me the biggest wink that you could ever give a person. <laughs> and he says, I tripped, but I knew you would be right here. So I thought I'd better stay here. <laughs> After he died, you applied for Social Security survivor benefits. Um, and of course, you had previously changed your driver's license a million years ago, your passport, Social Security card. Everything had been changed for a long time. Your name, your sex. And so after you applied for Social Security survivor benefits, they determined that you were legally male. Talk to me about how you teamed up with Lambda Legal and how it went, how they solved that problem. What happened? Uh, the FAA certified me as a woman pilot. So I had 
the permission of the government to be a woman, okay? And here they're denying me. However, there's a great organization, the IRS. Remarkable people. Lambda Legal made them say that I am now a woman and I'm legal to all the processing a woman gets from having a husband die. And that solved the whole thing. But it was many tears, as you might imagine. Yeah. Because of you, I don't have to imagine it, which is so amazing. So after months of advocacy, the Social Security Administration updated its policies and procedures. And uh, now, because of your case, the federal government and Social Security Administration has changed its policy. How did that feel, knowing that it was your case that accomplished that with the help of Lambda Legal? I don't think it was my case so strongly, as you put it. It is because it is a natural thing. And I'm always dealt with natural things in my life. I'm a woman. There's no way could I be accepted as a man. I can't function as a man. I can function 90% as a woman. I am such a lucky person. The whole world noticed that I received the blessings of the IRS for my changing of the sex from male to female. I was officially granted recognition. Me, not you, me. <laughs> Since he's down my face. Ah, what a day. That's what makes me conscious today of visibility. And that was the beginning of a lot of changes that were felt and are still being felt in this country and the world. My name on a piece of paper doesn't mean anything. But in the history of the United States, I helped solve a major problem between male and female. That was World War II veteran Robina Asti. She died back in March. After the break. Here you can go to a thousand feet with ease and roll around and dive and be in a third dimension. That is a fantastic human nature thing to do. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. In honor of Veterans Day, which was on November 11th, I'm talking with vets who are transgender. You've been hearing about the extraordinary life of 99-year-old World War II Navy pilot Rabina Asti. 
We recorded this conversation in October of 2020, and she died in March of 2021. But in her lifetime, she changed policies around physical exams for pilots, and her case made the Social Security Administration give out survivor benefits to transgender spouses. But when it comes to changing the world, why stop there? On July 23rd of 2020, she gave a very special flight lesson to Brandon Martini at Next Gen Flight Academy in Riverside, California. When they touched down, she had set the new world record for being the oldest flight instructor and another for being the oldest active pilot. I asked her why she wanted to set those records and how it felt. As a pilot, it really didn't make any difference to me. I still flew with the airplane. Fortunately, my daughter was in the back seat, so she saw it too. And that's what is important to me, that my daughter saw me make the record, and she was delighted, and she is delighted. At least I did something for the world. Maybe I'll set another record when I'm 120. When you are training people how to fly, like really early in their career as pilots, what are some mistakes that beginner pilots make? They get to think that they're awfully good and they can do the things. Well, I have such little tricks just to show them that they're babes in the woods. <laughs> and get them to understand that they're students and nothing but students. So you humble them? Ah, uh, not really. They're pilots. They shouldn't <laughs> be humble. They should be granted that ability to have conquered the air. I have a mental picture of an airplane taking off with a pilot flying. And I see the two wheels separating from the ground. And I'm thinking, that airplane is flying. Great fear. And the reverse of it. First wheel kisses the earth. And then the other wheel, after a few adjustments, kisses the earth. And the plane is grounded. It can't fly anymore. Aren't they great thoughts? And that's what piloting is. Would you say that pilots share a certain character trait? You know, I was saying that you, you humble them as an instructor, and you're saying, no, you know, they're empowered to fly. So would you say that being a pilot is a certain kind of person? Oh, yes. They are great. Every person who takes off from the ground and comes back and lands on the ground, that is a fantastic human nature thing to do. I mean, after all, what's the greatest height you ever jumped? Three feet? Here you can go to a thousand feet with ease and roll around and dive and crawl up and be in a third dimension. All because you're a human being. You're a human being and a pilot. Congratulations.
When I was researching you and reading all these articles about your time in the air, and especially setting this new world record as the world's oldest flight instructor, some of the articles did not mention that you were transgender. I don't care. What does that have to do with it? I'm a pilot. I'm not male. I'm not female. I am a pilot. I fly airplanes. That's all you have to know about me. In your 99 years on the planet Earth, you've been a pilot. You've been a spouse twice. You've been a parent. You've changed physical exam rules for pilots. You've fought for equal treatment for people who are transgender. You've set a world record. (laughs) And so as you round the corner into your 100th year... You are focused on another goal, and you have been focused on this goal, to raise money for your foundation, Cloud Dancers. Tell us about Cloud Dancers. Where did the word come from, Cloud Dancers? World War I pilots. They were a reckless group of people and good adventurers and happy to be playing in an area that very few people even knew existed. In an airplane, they'd be playing games. And the word was, ah, they're cloud dancers. In other words, they were people who played with the clouds. And they had to, their airplanes couldn't go very high. It's a great thing to be able to spiral in the air with an airplane to loop back and to know that you touched the very spot where you started it when you come over from the loop and the airplane shakes because it's gone through its own tail. Those are delightful things. You cloud dancers know what I'm talking about. Clouddancers.org. This really has only one goal. And that is to make the invisible feel visible. To grant wishes to those who know that they are invisible. Your wishes. They are sacred. They belong to you. If we can get people to donate to the cloud dances, we will be able to give wishes, and you might be surprised what would come out of it. I would be delighted, and when that happens, I'm going to celebrate my life. Your life so far has been pretty amazing. If you were able to go back to your 10-year-old child self and show that child self a snapshot of what your life is like today and all you've done, what do you think you at 10 years old would say about you at 99? You're not doing enough, jerk. (laughs) You didn't do everything I wanted. At 10 years old, I knew about inductive 
contentious. I knew about all of this stuff called electronics. And I'm saying, what dopes we are. Why didn't we have it when I was 10 years old? Where are humans going? They're not moving fast enough. For instance, why don't we have a colony of humans on the moon? Living on the moon and taking all of their life from the moon. We should have done that 50 years ago. And we're not doing it yet. How the devil are we ever going to get to Mars if we can't even live on the moon? Huh? And planning trips maybe to other planets to see how they are, see how Venus is doing. Venus needs a little help someplace. Let's help them. That's what makes us human. I know that if you were to talk to your 10-year-old self, your 10-year-old self would say, we haven't done enough. But what message would you have to your 10-year-old self? I'd tell him, I want to do a lot more, but the world stops me. And I'm very unhappy about that. I'm invisible. I'm going to make advice that will grant wishes to those who are invisible like me. And I hope that's a good marker for my life. Well, Rabina Fedora Asti, thank you so much for talking with me today. I love talking with you. Thank you. Think of anything flying in the air as my doing. You can see a documentary on Rabina's extraordinary lifetime and see more information on our foundation at clouddancers.org. Audacious is produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. To subscribe and listen back to previous shows about things like antinatalism, what it's like to not be able to feel physical pain, religious signs of the end times, and what it's like to be a world-famous meme, visit ctpublic.org audacious. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf. And if you're a veteran, I really want to hear your thoughts on this show. My email is cwolf at ctpublic.org and online use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening. <laughs>